Well, good morning. I hope you have a Bible with you. If you do, you can turn to the New Testament book of Colossians. Chapter 4, that's where we're going to be studying today. Uh, if you've been tracking with us, you know, we've been studying for several months now in Colossians. If you haven't been tracking with us, welcome. I'm so pumped you're here. But you're going to catch the second to last sermon from Colossians today. So we got one more next week. And actually, I wanted you to know next week, uh, Pastor Andrew, our pastor from our Longview campus, will be here uh, in person with us uh, next Sunday preaching from the last few verses of Colossians and wrapping it up for us. And so that's going to be exciting. I'll be here with you. I'm not going anywhere, but I'm just going to be around and uh, being able to sit with you and learn from him as well. So that'll be really, really fun. I hope you'll come and participate. As you turn there, I want to tell you a little story about my friend Bob. Bob uh, was a missionary in Scotland for several, several years during his career as a missionary. And his son Jason's a really good friend of mine. They lived in Scotland near a little place where Jason could ride his bike down a country road uh, to a lake called Loch Ness. You ever heard of it? Loch Ness. Uh, you might remember the, the uh, little mythical monster that lives in Loch Ness, so they say. But uh, my friend Jason's still alive, so I think it's safe to say he's probably okay. They lived right there, and they were missionaries, a missionary family, and they saw lots of people come to Christ who lived in Scotland. And, and my friend Bob told a story about visiting a new believer in his home in Scotland, walks into his home, and right there on the mantle is a cross. And he thought, this is, this is great, a new believer right there on the mantle, the cross front and center, except that he also noticed on either side of the cross were these other symbols from a range of religions and spiritualities. And he come, comes in and he goes, of course he wants to know about it. And so he says to this new friend, this new believer in Jesus, tell me more about your mantle. And the guy says, yes, you saw my cross. You, you have to know I'm so happy to know about Jesus. I'm so happy to believe in him and to add him to my repertoire of spiritual beliefs. And what Bob noticed and was able to respond to was the very same error that the Apostle Paul was responding to for the Colossian Christians in the New Testament book of Colossians. I love how Curtis Vaughn, theologian, says in uh, talking about the, the culture as a whole in and near Colossae in the first century. He said that at the heart, its system was a combination of religions, but it wore the mask of Christianity. It did not deny Christ, but it did dethrone him. It gave Christ a place, but not the supreme place. So even though on that mantle the cross was in the middle, the reality is that the cross must stand alone. And that's what Paul is writing the entire book of Colossians about. The first chapter was all about the colossal truth that Jesus is supreme over all things. This cosmic reality from every microbe to every star. He created it. He sustains it. It's all his, okay? He holds it all together. Chapter 2 was kind of the warning where Paul says there's some colossal mistakes you can make. If you fall into the trap of believing that Jesus is just one of many, that he's important but not the most important, that's a trap. But then in chapters 3 and 4, it gets into this colossal growth section where he's encouraging the Colossian Christians to take personal responsibility for their growth in Christ. And the way he does that is to lead them to how Jesus changes them when Jesus is supreme. See, we typically don't have religious 
figures other than the cross in our homes. Yeah, I probably would, could walk into any of your homes, any of your dorm rooms, and probably somewhere I would find a cross on a wall, a cross on a mantle, a cross somewhere. You'd probably have one, and you probably don't have symbols from other religions. That's not a struggle for you. But that doesn't mean there aren't lots of other things in your life that are pulling on your attention and pulling on your allegiance to distract you from Jesus being the supreme thing and central thing in your life. See, this is the greatest spiritual trap that we can fall into today. And I believe it has the greatest collateral spiritual damage when Jesus is important to us, but not the most important. When Jesus is just a spoke on your wheel and not the hub. But if Jesus is central to your life, if Jesus is supreme to your life, Paul's writing to the Colossians saying it's as if he is like a boulder that you just drop straight into the middle of a lake and it just ripples out and the effects of it make sure that every inch of that lake is touched. Nothing is left untouched by the effects of that boulder. And so when Jesus is supreme, our lives have to change. And we see this transformation happening in our lives. From chapter 3 in the beginning, we see how it transforms our very lives because of salvation. Then we see how it transforms our relationship with our other believers in the church. It transforms our relationships with our households. And even our work is transformed. And then in chapter 4, he gets into how the gospel of Jesus, when Jesus is supreme in your life, it moves beyond the ripples cross the line from your inner circles now to your outer circles. The ripples move into your life making an impact on the world. So chapter 4, verse 2 is where we're going to pick up on here, uh, in here and talk about how your life can make a difference in the world around you. What's the effect of Jesus' lordship in your life for people who you might come in contact with? cross paths with? How can your life make a difference? It's a huge task. You think, I'm just one person. How can I make a difference in another person's life, much less the world? But Paul boils it down in these couple of verses to just two simple life rhythms. And so I'm gonna just going to point these out to you, and we're going to talk a little bit more about them. The rhythms are an inner rhythm and an outer rhythm. One's related to your inner life. One's related to your outer life. So let's start here in verse 2 with the first rhythm, the inner life, which is praying privately like Jesus is supreme. Praying privately like Jesus is supreme. Let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say to the Colossians about prayer. Chapter 4, verse 2 says this, Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us, uh, to us, for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Now you might pick up on this, but just a little detail here is that the Apostle Paul is actually in prison, maybe alongside Timothy, uh, maybe alongside some others. That may be how he has come to know the Colossian Christians, because he hasn't been there in person yet. And you might remember that uh, at the beginning of Colossians, we notice that almost all of chapter 1 is, is the first half of chapter 1 is Paul's prayer for the Colossian Christians. And so what 
He starts with prayer, then in chapter 4, as he starts to wrap up Colossians, he ends with prayer. Not another prayer for them, but an invitation to prayer. An invitation into a life that is strong in prayer. A way of life that's strong in prayer. That's what the words devote yourselves mean. It's an invitation into a way of life that's strong in prayer. You ever been... Uh, around someone who's constantly in conversation with other people on their phone. And you're in person with them, but they are in digital conversation. Now, I'm not knocking this because it's great. We love texting. We love DMs, all that kind of stuff. But there's always that person that you've probably been around that you're trying to talk to, and they're, they're just constantly in conversation. And they, uh, yeah, they kind of give you a nod every once in a while. I look up, you know, oh, I'm still here. Yeah, are you still, are you still talking? Okay, I'm still over here. Yeah. That's how some people live in constant conversation with others that you're not with. But you know what's true about them is that their head is always down. The reality is prayer is also a constant conversation. But it's one that doesn't require your head to be down. And actually, for you people who grew up in the church, it also doesn't require your eyes to be closed. <laughs> prayer is a conversation with God that you can have all the time as a way of life. And so Paul says, devote yourselves. Be strong in prayer as a way of life. This conversation doesn't require your head down, your eyes closed. This is a conversation you can have while you respond to text messages. This is a conversation you can have with God uh, while you're at work, while you're in the dorm, while you're on a walk, while you're on a date. God, you can be talking to God on all of these situations. Now, of course, Jesus did instruct us that there ought to be times, and he modeled this for us too, that there ought to be times where we stop what we're doing in order to pull away and have focused time of conversation with God, where there are no distractions, where we're not just going about our business. But if I could just pull this out for you here, this phrase, devote yourselves, uh, doesn't refer to stopping to pray as much as it refers to stopping staying in the conversation with God. So when you get up from your knees, when you come out of your prayer closet, when you stop your mealtime prayer, devote yourselves means stay in the conversation with God. Keep talking with him. Keep listening. Keep becoming aware of God and his presence. Because prayer isn't just the words we say to God. Prayer is a way of being more than it is a way of doing. Prayer is the practice of just staying alert uh, to the supremacy of Jesus. How is God at work in the world? How can I see more of God in the world around me, in the people I'm interfacing with? How can I see what God is doing and become aware of who he is and stay in conversation with him? It's an awareness of God more than it is activity for God. It's learning to recognize Jesus before we make requests of him. Most of the times we get it the other way. We, we want to start by making requests. We haven't really seen God or become aware of him, but we know he's out there, and so I'm just going to start with my requests. But do, a life that's devoted to prayer, as Paul is saying, is a life that stays in conversation with God, that's constantly becoming aware of God's presence, that's looking for God at work, recognizing Jesus even before we bring our requests to him. And what better way to rightly acknowledge the supremacy of Jesus 
than through gratitude. I said just a few weeks ago that gratitude is the muscle we flex to show the work of God in our lives. As Jesus works in us and strengthens us from the inside out, gratitude is just a muscle we flex to show how good God is. But the resounding theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Jesus. We've established that 46 of 95 verses in Colossians refer to Jesus in some way or another. But if there was a second theme next to the supremacy of Jesus, it would be gratitude towards God. Every chapter in Colossians at least one time brings up gratitude towards God. And Paul does it here again where he says, devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. How does gratitude keep us active or or alert in prayer? James Moffat, a commentator, said this as as a paraphrase of this half of verse 2. He said, maintain your zest for prayer by thanksgiving. Maintain your zest for prayer by thanksgiving. In other words, gratitude is just a tool that can strengthen our prayer life. And if devoting yourselves to prayer is living a way of life that's strong in prayer, thanksgiving is a tool, gratitude is a tool that we use to become stronger in our awareness of God and our conversation with Him. Now, prayer is tough. A lot of you probably have had struggles praying. Maybe at some point you wondered if God was even listening. You probably wondered, as you talk to God, do my prayers go above the ceiling or do they just stop and fall on the floor? You probably have thought before that you're not sure how to pray or what to say. But remember, that's not just words, right? It's about becoming aware of God. And so prayer is this this time that we get to not just... uh, talk to him, but we get to become aware of him. And if gratitude is a way that we can kind of become stronger in prayer, then it's a good starting point when you're not sure what to pray for. Gratitude's always a good place to start. And not just for content, but also for connecting with God. I think I'm not sure what to say. I should start with gratitude. Well, that does help just so that you can have words coming out of your mouth, but it's not just about the words. It's about connecting with God. I've brought this up before in relationship to gratitude and prayer, but did you know that there's neuroscientific research that says the same neurons in your brain light up when you express gratitude as when you have a deep, intimate conversation with another person? The very same things in your brain start firing whether you're having an intimate conversation with one or you express gratitude, the same responses, the same neural responses, which means that gratitude is one of the ways that we strengthen intimacy. Our relationships grow when we show gratitude, and the same is true in prayer in our relationship with God. So it's a good place to start if you aren't sure what to pray, not just for content for your prayers, but for connecting with God in a very real way. So show gratitude. Uh, You know, uh, gratitude makes us more aware of God's presence. It makes us more aware of God's goodness. It teaches us, uh, this kind of repeats this, this chorus in our lives that God is good, that God's a giver, that he's above all. And it also, even more than just connecting and content, it helps us kind of recenter. You ever been distracted in prayer? That as you pray, your mind wanders? And then all of a sudden you realize you're like 
doing something else and you were praying, like you sat, down, you sat down to pray maybe and then all of a sudden you're on your phone. Or your mind wanders and, and then eventually you just fall asleep. <laughs> or You ever been in these situations? I think you probably have. Most people get frustrated with these kind of situations. Some people feel guilty when they pray and then their mind wanders. But prayer isn't something that we initiated. It's something that God initiated. And we get the joy and privilege of stepping into it. And when your mind wanders, could it be that it's not something to feel guilty about or something to feel bad about, but it's actually an opportunity to connect with God on a deeper level? What if you took what distracted you and you acknowledge it, maybe even write it down, and then meditate on that thing with God? wonder what in that situation that distracted me I could be grateful to God for. You see how you can take this thing that normally we would see as negative and actually becomes a way to go one step deeper with the Lord? And gratitude is a, a tool that you can use to help you get there. So what if you were distracted in prayer by a fear? Oh, what are those people going to think of me? Oh, you know, I'm, they're going to think I'm so dumb or... Or, or what if this happens to me? And I, I don't, you're distracted by a fear. Acknowledge it. Write it down and then go, okay, God, what do I have to be grateful for? Well, you're always with me. Even when I'm afraid, you never leave me. You know, what if it's like a relationship conflict? Like you're praying, you're trying to pray, for, but then you're just reminded of this person and you're like, oh, what they did to me, man, it just gets me, what they said to me, it just fires me up, like I wish I could get them back, whatever. Well, what if you just stopped, acknowledged it, maybe even write it down, and go, okay, God, I really don't like that person, but I'm so grateful that you gave us the example of Jesus, how to deal with difficult people, how to forgive God, help me figure out what my next step is in this and take what's distracted you and let it turn back into a deeper connection with God. Gratitude is a tool that can help you to do that. Maybe it's just that you care about something and recognizing that God cares about what you care about. You know, Thank you, God, for caring about what I care about. That's important. There's always a reason to be grateful. Regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your feelings, you'll always find a reason to be grateful because God is ultimately good. And so keep digging until you find a reason to be grateful. And there you will meet God and his goodness. And your relationship with him will deepen because you'll be responding to who he truly is. Gratitude is a good tool. There's always a reason to be grateful. Gratitude always orients our heart to the supremacy of Jesus. Which is why Paul makes the kind of prayer requests he makes in verse 3. You reading along with me, you'll see this in, in verse 3 of chapter 4. He starts with the rhythm of prayer, and then he makes his request. How often do we start with a request without establishing a rhythm? Paul starts with the rhythm, and then he makes his request, and his request is this, verse 3, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us to the world to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. So 
Paul's prayer request, did you notice how it wasn't focused on his personal misfortune? But instead it was focused on his missional purpose. Now this is a lot for a guy who's sitting in prison. More like we think of a jail somewhere, like the county jail. This is more like a dungeon probably. It's really a little dark. It's probably a little cold, maybe damp. I'm not sure, but it's, it's lonely except for maybe the people who are with him. And, you know, he's not really having his needs met on a regular daily basis unless people come and bring him things. This is not a good place to be. And Paul's prayer request is not, God, I wish you would get me out of this situation. Paul's prayer request is not, God, open the prison door. His prayer request is open a spiritual door so that your will could be accomplished, so that your word can go out, so that I can maybe be a part of more people hearing the gospel clearly in some form or fashion. Praying like Jesus is supreme is learning to embrace your circumstances as a way to most clearly illustrate the good news of Jesus. What circumstance are you in today? It may be a really stinky circumstance. But praying like Jesus is supreme is looking at that circumstance and going, where's the opportunity for the gospel to be clearly illustrated? Now that's a hard turn to make for a lot of us. Pastor Andrew over in Longview said this. He said, we often ask for deliverance from our adversity when maybe what we should be asking is for God to open an opportunity for us to point others to Christ. Paul's chains weren't as important as his charge to make Christ known, which is exactly where Paul goes next with how your transforming life supremely in allegiance to Jesus, can impact the world. It starts with your inner life, praying privately like Jesus is supreme, and then moves to your outer life, living publicly like Jesus is supreme. It's the same charge that Paul had as the charge you and I have, to make the gospel known to others. Now, this is a good place for a reminder. Did you know it's impossible for us to live a good enough life, to become pleasing to Jesus? See, we don't live the Jesus life as Christians for his love or for his acceptance. We live the Jesus life from his acceptance. This is the reality. Like, we have to start here. If we're going to talk about having an impact in the world, we've got to remember that it's God is our source. Like, he moved toward us first, and we live out of that. Now, what we do with that is not order, in order for us to gain his acceptance. We already have that. Now, that's what motivates us to live a life publicly like Jesus is supreme. So, how can our lives reflect the supremacy of Jesus to people who don't yet believe? Verses 5 and 6 in chapter 4 bring out a couple of obvious ways. Uh, your daily walk and your daily talk. So let's start with walk. Verse 5. Paul says this, Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Now the literal translation here is to, to walk in wisdom. That's where we get this idea of your daily walk. 
The way you act toward the world is your walk. It's, it's, the, it's the life that you project. It's what others see about you on the, in, on the outside. And what the call is for the Christian is to be careful, act wisely, to be careful that the life that the other people see on the outside matches the life that God sees on the inside. So we know that Jesus, because of our faith, Jesus forgave us, cleansed us, that our response to God's work of salvation was this just a faith in God's grace cleansed us of all our unrighteousness. And now God sees us as if we are Jesus, like his righteousness was applied to our lives. This is an amazing reality. And so God sees us as perfect. And so this ideal that what people see on the outside, our goal is for that to match what God sees on the inside, is this kind of layman's definition of act wisely. Act wisely toward outsiders. Make sure that they see the right picture because it is a reflection of who Jesus is. Your life is a reflection of who Jesus is. Now, you can easily slip into religion here. You can easily think that this is a statement about morality for morality's sake. Like, do the right thing or else. Like, that's been kind of the mantra of Christians for a long time. But the Bible tells a different story. Uh, the, the question that we have to ask is if Jesus is supremely uh, uh, in charge and Lord over everything about me, does my way of life and relating to people outside the faith leave a favorable impression of Jesus? Does it tell people, does it tell the story of who Jesus really is? Or does it tell a different story? And then how can I make those match? Act wisely. Because people need to hear about Jesus. There's a popular quote often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I don't know if you've heard it before. It says that uh, we ought to share the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. Share the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. Now, when we talk about our outside lives matching our inside lives, what we're talking about is living actively so that other people can see Jesus. And I've heard people use this quote from St. Francis of Assisi uh, as a defense for being passive about sharing their faith publicly. And you know the story. You've probably seen people like this. They go, Look, nobody wants to hear about Jesus. They don't want us knocking on their doors. They don't want us, you know, just every time we turn around telling somebody what the gospel is. They don't want to hear our outlines. They don't want to hear all the scriptures we have memorized. They just want us to act normal, right? But I tell you what, if you'll just sort of keep to yourself and you'll just sort of do your own thing, but you'll, you know, be a pretty moral person, then eventually someone will see that you're kind of different than them and they'll want to know, hey, why are you different? Maybe you've heard that story. And it's this passive public sharing of our faith. Except that Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, uses an active preposition. That we aren't just to act wisely among outsiders, but our lives by God are pointed in a direction toward people who are currently without him. We're to act wisely toward outsiders. 
Like there's a movement here. There's momentum that, that God, because this is who God is, right? Because we were all outsiders until he moved toward us through Jesus Christ. And so now we have the opportunity to reflect that reality toward others. The responsibility to reflect that reality toward others. This is who we are. And so living publicly like Jesus is supreme, it means that the cross can't just have a place on our mantle, even if it's alone. But instead, our lives ought to reflect what Jesus said in Luke 9 when he said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Daily, Jesus said. Doesn't that make you think about what Paul wrote here in verse 5? Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. See, there's an urgency here because our time is limited, but there's also an opportunity. Meaning every day you have a new opportunity to invite someone else to know Jesus the way you know him. By your outer life matching what God has already done on the inside. This is a movement of spiritual growth where we live into the reality that Jesus has already made certain. If Jesus is supreme, this is who we are. It's who we become, which is why in chapter 3, verse 17, you might remember this from a couple weeks ago, Paul says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of God of the Lord Jesus. So we just talked about deeds. Let's talk about words. Verse six says this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Every word is an opportunity to be gracious. Or literally, every word is an opportunity to be full of grace, overflowing with grace, that your words would tell the story of your experience with God's grace. That's the goal here. That's what we're moving towards. But also, Paul is just saying this kind of in more practical terms, like he's not talking about necessarily the grace of God, although that's what our words do. He's actually just saying, just be nice. Just be kind. You know, let your speech be pleasant. Speak in a way that people want to be around you. Speak in a way that draws people in, not that pushes people away. Speak in a way that's generous toward people. Speak in a way that's life-giving. All of these are different ways to describe what Paul is talking about here. Let your speech always be gracious. But then he also says, seasoned with salt. Now, when someone gets salty with you, you don't like it, do you? That's what we, in our culture, we think someone gets salty. It's like, man, I'm about to bow up. Like something's about to go down, right? Don't you get salty with me, right? But there was something totally different here in the Bible times, okay? What the, the, the Colossians, excuse me, would have understood Paul to mean is that they were to speak with purity. That their words would be wholesome. That their words would add flavor to the conversation, that they would be able to say things that were interesting to people who were outside of the faith as a way to draw them in, as a way to open the invitation for them to come to Christ. Christian speech was to be witty and fun, not dull and boring, not off-putting, 
The idea here is that your words ought to leave people wanting more conversation about Jesus, not less. So what would that look like in our culture today? How do we develop a vocabulary that opens the door to Jesus and speaks to where people are in a way that's life-giving and gracious, in a way that's fun and engaging, in a way that's smart and witty, in a way that's not boring so that we can draw people in. And then he says, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now I want to just pause here and pull out this reality. That your life and the impact it makes on the world, a world full of people outside the faith, the ripple effect that Jesus has when he is supremely in charge of everything about you, is relational. Your impact happens not to the world as a whole, but through people. And not just a lot of people, but each person. It means every person that crosses your path, every person you come in contact with, every person that sits next to you in class, every person you live with, every person at your job, every person on your team, everybody, each person, God desires a relationship with them. And you are in their life to open the invitation up by the way you live and by the way you speak. That's where real colossal growth in Christ happens. When Jesus is supreme over all and it changes everything about us, starting with our inner life, working its way out in how we walk and how we talk, the ripple effect of the lordship of Jesus, leaving nothing untouched, this is what Paul is talking about. And it reminds me of Psalm 19. Psalm 19.14 says, May the words of my mouth... And the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, God, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The illustration that how we ought to see ourselves because of the lordship of Christ, building rhythms of our inner life, praying privately, like Jesus is supreme and living publicly like Jesus is supreme, we ought to see ourselves as a lighthouse. It's a beautiful illustration. A lighthouse that stands on a shore and shines light into darkness, beckoning people home to Christ. That's you. That's me. If you know Jesus, if he's the Lord of your life, you're a lighthouse. There are people in your world each person that God sees and God wants you to shine his light to them. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples as he was sending them out? He said, there's lots of people out there who need to come into faith and are ready to come to faith. The way he said it was, the harvest is plentiful. And then he gives his prayer request, the only prayer request that Jesus ever made of other people. All four Gospels, the only time Jesus ever said to another person, would you pray for this? He said, pray to the Lord, the Lord of the harvest, 
that he would send workers into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That was Jesus' prayer request. And if we follow Paul's instruction here in Colossians to see this kind of transforming life have a ripple effect on the world around us, we become those workers. We're the answer to Jesus' prayer. You are. You are. I am. Jesus was praying for us, and God is using us to answer even his prayer. I want to give you some time to respond today. Haley's going to come and lead us in a brief response. In fact, I want to invite you just to stand and kind of shake off the cobwebs a little bit as we uh, sort of work our way out, like getting kind of moving again. In our last couple minutes together, we're going to sing another song. But I want to just speak to two kinds of people in the room for just a second. The first is those who have Jesus as Lord of your life, like the cross is on your mantle and nothing else. Can I just tell you that God wants to use you to influence others for the gospel? And while we sing, I want you to imagine people in your circles of influence, people that you walk next to, walk past, walk by, drive by, you know, deal with, business with, any people, just picture their face. And just ask God, what would it look like for me to act wisely toward them? What would it look like for me to speak to them with grace, to invite them into a relationship with Jesus? Other person in the room, maybe an outsider to the faith. You may know you're an outsider of the faith. You may go, I, don't, I didn't want anything to do with that. Someone drug me here. You may also say, well, I've known about the faith for a long time, but I don't feel like an insider. I just feel like I'm sort of on the edge. I've never really connected with God in a personal way. Can I just say to you that the invitation is open to you today to put faith in Jesus for salvation. And God is faithful to do it. The Bible says in Romans 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So to recognize the reality that you have sin in your life that separates you from God, but then to hear the good, good news that Jesus stepped into that for you to pay the price for your sin by his death on the cross so that if you would just believe in him, he would give you incredible grace to forgive you of all your sin, to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. And then the story goes on that he didn't stay in the grave. He, he resurrected from the grave, which tells you that you can have new life in Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in him, it's not just a religion you're joining. It's a new lease on life. It's an eternal life. You know, relationship with God changes everything about you. The ripple effect. And you're invited. If that's you today, you're an outsider and you're ready to step in, I'm going to walk right back to the back of the room by the bistro tables. I'm just going to invite you while we sing, just come join me. Come tell me you're ready to get in. And I'll help you take that step of faith. I want to pray for you, and then we're going to sing this song. God, you are so good to us that you would give us Jesus. What an incredible gift. We can never repay you. I'm so grateful, God, for our salvation. I pray that every person in this room would personally know you in a way that changes everything about them, that Jesus would be supreme over our lives, that you would use us to invite others in to the joy of that is life with Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.